This episode of Clinch is brought to you by Missionalware, promoting the reformed lifestyle through apparel, drinkware, accessories, posters, and even now theologian statues. Check them out at www.missionalware.com. There you can pick up everything from Charles Spurgeon journals to Calvinist mugs to Reformation onesies to products from my other two programs. These go to Eleven and the Gut Check Podcast. Check it out at www.missionalware.com. They're going to look for your stuff because you're speaking some language of their soul that they're resonating with. The words were shards of glass carving away her own delusion. Liberty's voice sounded... Uh, I'm a little OCD when it comes to making sure I get my word count uh, completed daily. A thick scream of pain filled the air, and then there was more blood in the water. Trenton took a deep breath and made his move. But really, the heart of Christian fiction is people writing from a Christian worldview. Without thinking twice, we both took off running toward the sound of the train whistle. And for me, two of them bombed, four of them, they were okay, and two of them absolutely killed it. Right, so you just have to keep writing books and do the best you can. I think that my greatest anxiety is that the first one won't do very well, and then the second one will suffer because of that. The Naya swings the blow that will crush the Egyptian skull, but the mace, slick with briny seawater, slides out of his grip. His eyes clamp shut. This is Clinch, a podcast of fiction and not fiction. Welcome back to Clinch Season 2. I do realize there's been a bit of a gap, but maybe think of those first three eps as a soft open or like a preview, kind of priming the pump with some of the good stuff. And now the pump is really going, and I've got authors lined up to bring you the fiction and the not fiction, at least through the next couple months. Uh, but before we get to today's author, a couple things I need to attend to. First off, something I had planned to say first thing before the first ep, but totally forgot, and that is this. If you are one of the people who purchased a copy of Clinch, a novel, last year, whether paperback or ebook, I wanted to say thank you. Also, I'm sorry. We've talked a bit about the strengths and weaknesses and dangers of indie publishing on this program, and one of the biggest weaknesses is the ability to put out garbage. And I put out some garbage. Not the story. I'm quite happy with that. Not the cover or the look or even the layout. It was the proofing or lack of proofing. You see, I gave myself a deadline of having the book up on Amazon ready to purchase before that last episode of season one dropped so I could sort of parlay this podcast into a few book sales. And in doing so, I bit off more than I could chew. If you were one of those first couple dozen customers who got those early copies from before I gave the thing a deep proofread, then you know it was rough. My friend Noah, you might remember him from the podcast uh, last year, he said that it looked like I had been drinking while I wrote it and got increasingly more drunk as I went. And the reason for that is simple. I had written and revised and polished the heck out of the first 10 or so chapters before even conceiving of this podcast. Then I had a rough draft written of another 10 or so chapters, and then I just had really detailed outlines for the rest of them, chapter by chapter, meaning that by the end of the run, I was writing, revising, and recording in rapid succession. Now, it didn't much matter if everything was spelled and punctuated correctly back then, just as long as I could understand it while narrating, but once I started trying to push through quickly and get the thing ready for publication, there was just too much there for me to catch in one quick read-through. 
And to complicate things, I wrote it all on this old school word processor called the Dana with the jankiest spell check ever. Half the time, I don't even bother to use it. So again, sorry, and let me make it right. If you have in your possession one of those janky early copies, just take a picture of a typo, any typo, they're easy to find, email it to zach at zacharybartles.com, that's Zach with an H, the way God intended, along with your physical address, and I will send you a non-janky signed copy uh, by way of apology and reconciliation and all that stuff. And you know, while I'm offering to give away books, here's another one for you. My guest today is my amazingly talented wife, Erin, whose new book, We Hope for Better Things, came out at the beginning of this week. And if you tweet about that book, preferably with some kind of graphic and a link to where someone can buy it, and hashtag the tweet, ClinchPod, we'll enter you into a raffle bot to win a signed copy of We Hope for Better Things. So with that out of the way, let me introduce today's author while also talking about myself. Remember, I said a couple things because, hey, it's my podcast and I can do that. Aaron Bartles is a copywriter and freelance editor by day, a novelist by night, and a painter, seamstress, poet, and photographer in between. Her debut novel, We Hope for Better Things, released on January 1 from Ravel Books, and will be followed in November 2019 with The Words Between Us, which was a finalist for the 2015 Rising Star Award from the Women's Fiction Writers Association. Her short story, This Elegant Ruin, was a finalist in the Saturday Evening Post 2014 Great American Fiction Contest. Her poems have been published by The Lyric and the East Lansing Poetry Attack. A member of the Capital City Writers Association and the Women's Fiction Writers Association, she is former features editor of WIFWA's Write On magazine. That's a pun, Write On. Erin lives in the beautiful, water-defined state of Michigan, where she blah, 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 blah. What it doesn't say here is anything about all the huge buzz that this book has gotten. And I mean, I know a little bit about how that feels to have a bunch of buzz about your debut, but this is bigger than anything I've experienced. It's not just more in quantity, it's, it's qualitatively different. We Hope for Better Things got a starred review in Publishers Weekly. That is a huge deal. They reserve this for incredible standout books. Uh, and in that review, they said, in this powerful first novel, Bartles successfully weaves American history into a deeply moving story of heartbreak, long-held secrets, and the bonds of family. And then just today, I saw what Library Journal had to say about the book. A forbidden interracial marriage, an escaped slave, an unexpected mother waiting for her Union soldier to return. All of these stories are deftly told by Bartles as she explores the hard realities of racism and its many faces during various eras of American history. Not to mention, of course, lots of big shots and big time authors uh, just glowingly praising this book. Now, all of this has a few people wondering in the back of their minds about my delicate male butterfly wings. You know, like, does this sort of shine a harsh spotlight on dark places, memories of my own book launches, and subsequently the, the whimper and, and gurgling sound with which my own traditional publishing aspirations faded away? Even Aaron asked me early on, is it okay for me to talk to you about this stuff with this sort of cagey tone of someone handing an invitation to an engagement party to a recently widowed friend? Of course it's okay. This is awesome. And in hindsight, and I know this is going to sound like I'm trying to convince myself, but no, in hindsight, everything worked out perfectly. This came to me in an epiphany while watching Cheers a couple weeks ago. You see, Aaron and I are binging Cheers by night while simultaneously re-binging great news for like the third time. 
But I noticed something during that iconic opening to Cheers with that amazing song playing about how everybody knows your name and those cool old like woodcut type illustrations that come up. And I saw that the first two people billed on screen are Ted Danson and Shelley Long, naturally the two big stars of the show, only neither of them is billed before the other. They do this clever Hollywood thing where one name is positioned kind of near the lower left corner of the screen while the other is above and to the right. So reading left to right, one of them kind of comes first, but the other one is higher. So no one's really billed for Everyone's little Hollywood ego is satisfied. And honestly, that's kind of what I see going on here. I mean, yeah, Aaron and I have both been writing since before we started dating in 1995, but I got the two book deal first. And she was super supportive and amazing, and frankly, much of the reason why I even got the deal to begin with. I talk about all that on an earlier episode of the podcast. And then she got her contract further down the timeline to the right, but she's going way higher. And the reason it's perfect is this. What if I had gotten my contract first and it would have been a blowaway success? and led to deal after deal after deal and all sorts of books and sales and, and royalty statements that were full of black ink and not red. I mean, they don't use red ink, but you know what I mean. In that case, I fear that when Erin came out with her books, even though she'd been working on novels for 15 years, even though she'd been working and publishing for, for longer than that, I bet there would have been some sense bubbling around there of, well, she's only able to get these books published because her husband's a successful novelist. And maybe she'd had some help, or who, who knows? And even if that wasn't going on, it would have maybe been in the back of our minds that people thought that, and that's uncomfortable. Or flip it the other way. What if she would have gotten her contract first and her books just killed it, which they will, and frankly already are. Well, then what about when I came in trying to write my far nichier books that wouldn't do nearly so well? People would have been like, why is your husband randomly copying you. I, I thought he was a pastor. Now all of a sudden he's he's a writer too? This way, though, when I come out with my next book, the, the husband of a rising star selling a few hundred copies of this violent dystopian story for Bible nerds and Hebrew enthusiasts, it won't be weird. It will be balanced, sort of, like Ted Danson and Shelley Long. The only weird part is that for a bunch of reasons, obviously I'm the Shelley Long here. So that's why, even in the deepest, deepest recesses of my heart and mind, I don't feel any weird, grrr, selfish reservations about celebrating my wife's amazing success. I am so excited for her. I am so proud of her. And frankly, I'm looking forward to the prospect of being a, a kept man, should that develop. So without further jawing from me, here's Erin Bartles offering you her insights on publishing and an exclusive piece of short fiction that I really love called 98. Sometimes you wanna go where everybody knows your name And they're always glad you came You wanna be where you can see Our troubles are all the same You wanna be Everybody knows your name. Do you validate? In late November, I walked into the publishing offices where I work and saw a fellow publishing professional from the sales department talking to the marketing director for fiction. I don't know what they were talking about before I walked up, but when I came near, my colleague from sales said, Congratulations on your validation. 
He was referring to the starred review of my debut novel, We Hope for Better Things, that had just run in the November 12th issue of Publishers Weekly. It sounds flip, but it really wasn't. You see, this sales director is also an author, albeit under a pen name, and a couple years prior he had received a starred review from Publishers Weekly on his debut novel. And that review had been validation for him, just as mine had been validation for me. He knew something few authors know, what it's like to publish at the house you already work for in another capacity. Let me back up a bit. In 2012, I began planning a novel. I'd just written one, sort of, but that first one ultimately would go nowhere but a dusty folder on my hard drive, never to see the light of day again. It was my practice novel. To even finish it had felt like a personal triumph on par with climbing Kilimanjaro. No, the novel I was planning in 2012, then researching in 2013, then writing and revising in 2014, would eventually become my debut novel and the subject of that Publishers Weekly starred review. Along the way, I'd have friends and other writers read it and offer feedback. Their criticism helped me make the book better, but I took any of their praise with a grain of salt. They had to be nice about it, right? They were my friends and colleagues. It would be awkward if they told me it was one of the worst things they'd ever read. Eventually, I'd begin searching for an agent, and I'd go through so many rejections that when someone did finally show an interest and offer representation, I was really happy. But there was still a part of me that wondered at her taste. After all, so many people had said, thanks, but no thanks. Maybe she was wrong about my work. And then came the submission process where more people said no thank you. Surely those people knew what they were talking about. Surely this little novel of mine had no place in their inboxes. Until one day in 2017, yep, a full three years after I'd started looking for an agent, someone else said yes. An editor loved it. The editorial board at her publishing house loved it. And the pub board loved it. The contract was signed, and the slow, plodding wheels of the publishing machine got turning. The offer had come through when I was up at camp, where my husband was serving as camp pastor for the 7th and 8th grade week. Lots of important things have happened to me at that camp. It was my first significant time of independence away from my parents when I worked there the summer I was 18. It was where my husband proposed to me that same summer. It was where I was baptized at age 19. It was where my son first laughed at six weeks of age. It was where he took his first steps the next year. And now, it was where I was finally getting a chance to publish something I'd been working on for years. So why didn't I feel as excited as I thought I should? Why did it feel like just another day? Why wasn't I jumping up and down or crying like I'd read other people did when they got their first offer? Well, because I worked there. The place that wanted me was the place I'd worked for 15 years. It felt a little like your mom telling you how much she loved your performance in a play. It was nice and all, but what you really want to hear when you're performing is the praise of strangers, of people who have no other reason to say nice things but that you wowed them with your performance. There was a part of me that felt like I really hadn't succeeded because I hadn't truly broken through the industry gatekeepers. I was allowed to walk through the gate because I already worked there. So, as I shared the news that I would be published, 
I struggled to match the enthusiasm I saw in the faces of friends and family and other writers I'd connected with online and in person. They were so full of exclamation points, and all I felt was ellipses. Admittedly, I come from a rather reserved people. A potent combination of German practicality, English stoicism, Scottish pessimism, and Irish self-deprecation. My own son recently pointed out to me that it's difficult to make me laugh. Well, what he said was that I don't have a sense of humor, but after some discussion, he accepted that perhaps we just find different things funny. I don't want to sound like I was ungrateful, or like I didn't know there were thousands of writers who would love to be in my shoes. I was happy that my debut novel was going to be published. There was just a part of me that wished it was with people I didn't already know. As time went on, I did get more excited. My editorial team was fantastic. My marketing and PR people were energetic, experienced, and on top of things. The company I was publishing with was stable, something that cannot be said for a lot of houses out there. And as we got nearer to publication and sent advance reader copies out and people started putting up early reviews on Goodreads, I was happy with their reaction to the book. And yet, still, the people I'd sent ARCs to all had some kind of connection to me. That's why I knew their addresses. They were attending a conference at which I frequently speak, or they were part of the debut author group I'm in on Facebook and were doing me a favor by reading and reviewing and getting buzz going. I was doing them similar favors. It just gets you thinking. Is everyone just trying to be nice? Is everyone my mom after a play performance? Then along comes Publishers Weekly with their starred review. Congratulations on your validation. That's exactly what that review felt like to me. Independent confirmation that what I had written was not a pile of garbage. The approval that I might have felt from publishing with a house with which I was not already affiliated came in a column of black text hanging beneath a red star. My colleague in the sales department knew that feeling. And now I did. This sounds like a happy ending to the problem of my self-doubt. But, as any writer knows, that feeling never really goes away. That insatiable need to be assured that you have good ideas and a unique or compelling voice and people should be listening to what you have to say. The ego must be fed. And not necessarily because of pride, though that often plays a part. No, at the beginning, it's more fundamental than that. At the beginning, you need to believe that you have anything worth saying at all. For why should others listen to you? Who are you to speak about what you believe, or what you struggle with, or what you find beautiful or terrifying or intoxicating? We all have thoughts about the world, why are yours worthy of being written down? And why should anyone fork over any sum of money in order to read them? Just who the hell do you think you are, anyway? Imposter. Charlatan. Fraud. You only got that book published because you work there. You must not be good enough for New York. You must not be as good a writer as you always thought you were, as your teachers told you you were. You were just one of the bigger fish, and you were very small. Midwestern Pond. Now, I have been told that I don't take compliments very well. They make me vaguely uncomfortable, and they so often feel like traps. 
as though to accept them would be to agree with the sentiment being expressed, which would, of course, be the epitome of vanity and pride, the ugliest and most vulgar qualities a Christian can have. To agree with the one complimenting you, and imply that you deserved their admiration, how gauche! Yet, in a perverse, double-edged sword sort of way, my besetting sin is pride. I love to impress people. I love to be thought of highly. When I was in school, I wanted A's. When I was in plays and musicals, I wanted applause. When I get my yearly review at work, I want all those check marks to be in the excellent box. Very good is not good enough for me. To get an agent, to get a publishing contract, to get a good review, they're all compliments of sorts. They're all telling you that you did a good job. They're all feeding your sense of self-worth. The problem is, publishing is an up-and-down game. A writing career is all about long, hard hours wrestling with ideas and words, followed by longer, harder hours of waiting for someone, anyone, to respond, to acknowledge you, followed by the specter of rejection, bad reviews, or just simply being ignored. If a writer draws her self-worth from the reception her writing gets, she is setting herself up for failure, depression, self-loathing. In other words, a starred review in Publishers Weekly is not where I should be getting my validation. It's not where I should find my worth. I should be happy about it. I should graciously accept the compliment. But I should never believe the lie that what I do is who I am. My worth is rooted in something far greater and far less changeable than my own ability to write or the world's reception of my writing. It is rooted in my creator. The one who set the stars in place set me down right here in Michigan. He gave me a desire to create as well. He planted a seed of talent in me with the directive that I should work to make it grow and bear fruit, not for my own glory, but for his. And so I write. I write through my questions and my struggles and my sins. I write to find answers, to find comfort, to remind myself that I am forgiven. Not because of what I can do, but because of what he did. I don't need validation. I don't need to prove to others that I have a right to my own voice. I only need to tend that seed of talent God planted within me, to honor the giver, by honoring the gift. Just a reminder that this episode is brought to you by Missional Wear. Let me ask you something. Where was Missional Wear when I was a teenager in the early 90s? I was that kid who always unironically wore the cheesiest Christian t-shirts. I'm talking His Pain, Your Gain, A Jam for the Lamb, and this one that just said Messiah in a weird font across my chest in retrospect, implying that I am actually the Messiah, which, for the record, I am not. If only I'd had missional wear, with aesthetically pleasing, funny, powerful, snarky, or thought-provoking designs rooted in the Reformation and historic Christian orthodoxy. Check out missional wear for apparel and a whole lot more. www.missionalwear.com That's missional, W-E-A-R.com. 98. A short story by Aaron Bartles. It started with an invitation, naturally. Megan wasn't actually surprised. She knew the time was approaching. 
Her sister's 20th reunion had been two years ago, though she hadn't gone, had laughed, in fact, when Megan had asked her if she was planning to attend. Her sister's had been on a swanky steamboat that was permanently anchored in the river downtown. For the class of 1998, the accommodations would be more modest. Just a plain hall, a buffet, and a cash bar somewhere on the west side of nearby River City. No DJ. Someone would plug a phone into a speaker and play an appropriately nostalgic Pandora station. No particular agenda. No speeches by the class president, or the valedictorian, or the homecoming king and queen. No slideshow set to Green Day's time of your life. Despite that, maybe because of it, Megan did want to go. It had been years since she'd seen any of the old gang, Facebook stalking notwithstanding. It would be nice to sit and reminisce for a while with people who had known her since kindergarten. They understood her, even if they hadn't spoken in 20 years. She didn't have to explain anything to them. And she was tired of having to explain herself. She rolled into town early on the appointed Saturday in August, driving first to her elementary school and parking on the street where she served as a crossing guard for the safety patrol in fifth grade. The flagpole was empty and would be until school started in a few weeks, later than it had when she was a student there. She peeked into the lobby window, disappointed to see that the brick planters that had once been home to a jungle of tropical indoor plants were empty. She was not surprised that the old playground equipment had been replaced by structures that looked far safer and were surrounded by rubber from recycled shoes and tires rather than concrete. What they had gotten reprimanded for calling the battlefield, nothing more really than a wide lawn, was intact, but the stations, a low balance beam, some metal rings, a chin-up bar, etc., were gone. Just as well, she thought. They probably weren't safe by today's coddling standards. Megan got back in her rental car and tooled down the road to the junior high and high school, which sat next to each other a few blocks east. After Brad Ellis died in that car wreck, a youth memorial park was erected on a spot of lawn on the corner. A winding path, some young evergreens, weather-resistant benches made out of some weird space-age material, and an enormous granite slab upon which the names of the dead would be etched. At the font size chosen for Brad's name, it appeared that the park designers were ready for either a few catastrophic events with many victims, or else they expected the school and the park to still be there 300 years later. The trees were all overgrown now, and Megan couldn't read the names from the car, but she could see that less than 1% of the memorial's real estate had been used, which was a good thing, of course. No sports teams had been claimed by plane crashes. No students had been angry and disenfranchised enough to come in with semi-automatic rifles to exact revenge. The problems at Kennedy were the problems of simpler times. Drunk driving, perhaps a suicide. Megan thought she remembered hearing a few years ago about a student who had drowned in Lake Huron on senior skip day. She parked in her old spot by the side door and got out of the car. She strolled by the tennis courts, the baseball diamond, the football field with the track running around it. There were soccer fields now, which hadn't really been a thing until after she'd graduated. As she leaned over fences and stared at the playing surfaces, she wanted her mind to fill them with memories. With people in jerseys, with sounds of balls hitting bats, and announcers calling out touchdowns, with smells of popcorn and leather and new tennis shoes. But all she saw was an empty court, an empty field, an empty track. All she heard were cicadas. She drove by her old house, then headed west out of Sussex, toward the condo her parents had moved into in River City when she was in college. Hugs, lunch, chit-chat, 
Her mother checked and rechecked that Megan had the code to the garage, assured her that she'd have her phone on in case her daughter needed her. Mom, I'm nearly 40. Just in case. Megan changed her clothes. She had no idea how casual or how dressy she should be. She knew that certain historically more stylish friends would be there, but she also knew that River City standards were different than those in trendier cities. The thought of an image-conscious hipster scene in River City seemed ludicrous. At least here, she would not feel old and out of touch. Hair, makeup. She should have switched to a smaller purse. Should have taken the time to get some cuter shoes. Should have lost those ten pounds like she promised herself she would back in March. Too late now. When Google Maps told her to, Megan parked by a dull brown building that looked like it might have once been home to medical offices. A sign on the door told her to go upstairs for the Sussex Kennedy class of 1998, 20th High School Reunion. Obediently, she climbed half a dozen steps and put her hand on the knob, wishing she wasn't walking in alone or on time. She could already see a few of her old classmates through the small window in the door, but they hadn't seen her yet. There was still time to change her mind, to head to a coffee shop and read a book, or just go back to her parents' house and hang out with them. These people didn't want to reminisce with her. If she were really friends with any of them, she'd have been sharing pictures on Facebook for the past 20 years of their mutual exploits at concerts and bars and ball games. If they were really friends, they'd have made an effort to keep in real touch, not fake online touch. If they were really friends, there would be no need to catch up. No asking, so what is it you do? Or, how many kids do you have? Megan's hand dropped off the doorknob. She was just hitching her too heavy purse up on her shoulder and starting to turn away when she saw someone see her through the window. Inside, Danielle Galicki immediately smiled a broad, genuine smile and started walking toward the door, which Megan, sporting a similar smile now, opened wide. High-pitched highs and hugs were exchanged. Megan wished it was customary in River City to kiss friends on the cheeks. Hugs seemed so pedestrian. Her long-ago trip to Italy during her sophomore year of college, with its kisses and wines and late nights by the river, seemed so long ago. Longer ago than when she'd last seen these people. None of them knew about that trip. And it was too long ago now to bring up without seeming like you were living in the past. The bar's over there, Danielle explained as she affixed a name tag to Megan's chest, as though they were all so different now they'd never remember who was who. Megan made a beeline to the ladies' room. In the mirror, she saw a woman who looked well enough like the senior picture on her name tag, though a fair bit heavier after two kids and certainly sweatier, the latter a direct result of the temperature of the room, which was too hot for what she'd worn. The cardigan, light as it was, would have to go, and her bare upper arms, not so toned and tanned as they used to be, would be in all the pictures. She washed her hands, patted cold water on her neck, and touched up her lipstick. Then she walked back through the door, out into the hall where music was now playing, and several more people had gathered in a huddle by the door. There were many more hugs and hellos, and wow, you look great! Any angst she'd felt about whether she'd be embraced by her former classmates drifted away. No one was mad at her. No one even looked at what she was wearing. No one tried to avoid her. No one confronted her about something she'd said or done 20 years ago that they'd been stewing about ever since. No one was jealous of her. No one sized her up. It was utterly and completely agreeable.
She piled her plate with salad and chicken, just a little bit of macaroni and cheese, and then went back for healthy seconds on the macaroni and cheese. No one looked at her plate. No one talked about carbs or gluten or protein. No one cared. The guy at the cash bar had limited offerings, so she made a few trips downstairs to the full bar at the hub for drinks, always with somebody from her past. Girls she'd played softball with, boys she'd dated, friends she'd competed with for parts in school plays. Sometimes their nameless pleasant spouses would tag along, but they always knew that they weren't there to make new friends. They'd be introduced, smile, shake a hand, and then fade inconsequentially into the background. Megan made it a point to talk to as many people as she could, even if they hadn't been friends, and even if they'd always kind of gotten on her nerves. Remember the time when was the chorus of the night's song, which grew and morphed and developed like a long-time jazz ensemble, improvising. The party moved downstairs to the hub in stages. In a corner by the door, a man played a guitar while a woman sang. They weren't there to entertain the class of 1998, but they did play a lot of great music from just the right era. The bartender was good, the drinks were cold, the talk was constant. And now that just about everyone had had a few, or more, little revelations were leaking out the sides of people's mouths. Heidi finally admitted to TPing Megan's house when she'd gotten the role in Into the Woods that Heidi had wanted. Megan had always suspected. Carrie confided that while she hadn't actually vandalized Principal Pietka's car junior year, she had bought the spray paint. Megan told her friend Jeff that she appreciated it when he accidentally saw her bare breasts at a pool party and never said anything about it. Jeff told her about how he'd been in love with her best friend Joanna, who'd moved away after ninth grade, but that he'd never had the courage to just go for it. And somewhere, he said, on Mackinac Island, there's a stone with JM plus MS written on it. Until he'd said it, Megan had forgotten that she and Jeff had been an item for about a week in eighth grade. Each story was chased with a shot of laughter. Megan couldn't remember when she'd had so much fun. She bought drinks for friends and accepted drinks bought for her. She didn't mind the clammy hands and sweaty backs when everyone pushed in for photographs or grabbed her shoulder when they wanted to tell her a story. In fact, she hadn't felt this at home in years. At a lull in the conversation, she spotted Vic Johnson, whom she hadn't yet had a chance to talk to. They had never, if memory served, talked well in high school, but that didn't really matter. She leaned on the high-top table he was sitting at and said, Hey, how you been? Vic patted the chair next to him, so she sat down. Look at you, he said. But he wasn't really looking at her. He seemed to be looking through her. What you been up to, Vic? You write? She thought she heard him say. Several people had asked her about her writing that night, so she wasn't surprised to hear the question again. Yes, I have another book coming out in a few months. You write? He said again. And Megan realized that he was saying ride, not write. Oh, no, do you? Vic swayed atop his tall chair, appeared to think for a beat, and nodded. And though she had never been a part of the party scene while in school, and had never gotten high or even realized at the time that a good 20% of her classmates were regularly stoned, even Megan could see that Vic was either out of his mind drunk, or was on something much more potent than beer. She was coming up with an exit line when a girl she'd never met before sat in the chair on the other side of her, leaned in close, and said, Do you ride? Vic smiled dully and said, This is Brittany. Do you ride? Brittany said again. No, Megan said. 
You two ride motorcycles? No, Brittany said. We ride pedal bikes. We ride all over. She launched into a litany of where the two of them rode their bikes, and Megan found herself wondering whether this mode of transportation was their first choice or last resort. If perhaps they'd had their driver's licenses revoked because of too many DUIs. She had to get out of this non-conversation with a person she didn't even care about. She rattled the ice around in her empty glass. Man, it's hot in here. I'm going to get another drink. Brittany looked disappointed that she was leaving, but Vic's glassy expression never changed. Megan leaned against the bar, ordered a martini, and felt someone looking at her out of the corner of her eye. Hey, stranger, he said. Jason Kesmerick. This was a conversation she had been waiting for. She'd seen him several times already, always across the room, and always talking with people she'd already talked to, as if he were following her. She'd hesitated to approach him, though she thought she caught him looking her way once or twice. Or else, he'd caught her. And now, here they were, side by side, bellied up to the long oak bar. The bartender put down her drink, and Jason handed him a ten. On me. Megan held the martini up toward him, and he tipped the mouth of his beer to the glass, which answered with a little clink. Kind of surprised to see you here, he said. Well, I like to keep people on their toes, she said. He smiled with the left side of his mouth, so we weren't too far off base. Excuse me? Most likely to be president? Ha! <laughs> Please, she said. Well, you've still got best smile. He took a long drink of his beer. And I see you've still got a lock on most charming. Jason twisted his lips and raised his hand in a gesture that suggested he truly couldn't help it. Where's Melissa? she asked. Home, with the boys. She really had no interest in coming. He swiveled on his seat. Where's... Chad? Charles. Home, with the girls. He actually wanted to come, but I told him he wasn't invited. Why's that? I didn't know how these two parts of my life would mix, you know? I just wanted to... be me. Just me. No one else. She sipped her drink and looked to him for affirmation of this feeling she could hardly name. It wasn't regret, and it wasn't sadness, and it wasn't disappointment, but it was something. He nodded. I get that. He was looking into her eyes in that way that someone does when they want something to be said. Only, she didn't know what to say. No, it wasn't that exactly. She knew what she wanted to say to him, and she knew he wanted her to say it. She slipped an olive off the bamboo skewer to give her tongue something else to do. Jason looked away. Let's go to Mixers, someone said over her right shoulder. It was midnight, and the party was breaking up. Megan didn't know where Mixers was, and frankly didn't see the point in leaving one bar to go to another. But when Jason drained his beer and gave a nod at the door... She took one more sip of the martini and pulled her too large purse over her shoulder. The night wasn't exactly young, and neither were any of them, but no one seemed quite ready to let it die. She was given contradictory directions by a couple different people. She knew it wasn't because they wanted to ditch her, like she'd occasionally been peer pressured into doing to annoying hangers-on. She'd never felt good doing that, but she'd done it. This wasn't that. 
This was people who'd had a few and who hadn't been back in town for a while. Google gave her more specific instructions, which she followed carefully, heading across the Cortez Bridge to the east side of the river. She slowed to a crawl on the bridge to watch the city lights dance on the water. At that moment, no one, she realized, with a sudden, glorious clarity, knew exactly where she was. No one was waiting for her. She had no one to whom she would need to explain herself. No texts needed to be sent about where she was and who she was with and when she'd be home and why she was out so late. She could have driven away into the night, never to return, and no one would know for hours. She smiled and tamped down the tears that pressed at the back of her eyes. She obeyed the robotic voice as it told her to turn here and there, and she came to a stop on the side of the road across from Mixer's. Jason hadn't waited outside for her so they could go in together. Megan could see him through the window, leaning on a high-top table and talking to Jesse Rogers, who had organized the reunion despite not being the class president. Steve Novak was certainly in no position to do it. He was on year five of 15 for embezzlement. Nearly 40 people out of her class of less than 100 had made it to the reunion, a far better ratio than she'd expected. Thirteen plus a few spouses and one random person from the class of 2001, had continued on to Mixers, a bar that was half full of sketchy people, most of whom looked to be ten years younger than she was, and sported an impressive array of about 500 bottles of booze lit with blue light behind the black lacquered bar. The bathroom was tiny and out of paper towels. Having already dispensed with the catching up and reminiscing portions of the evening, talk turned to those who weren't there those who hadn't come to the reunion at all, or who had simply cashed it in before it became a movable feast. Do you know Hillary Van Octon's in town? Now? Why isn't she here? She's camping out at the state park with her family. She couldn't come down here for a few hours and say hello? Did Brian leave? Yeah, he had a flight at 7.30 tomorrow. That wife of his was something else. Hey, Did you have any idea that Kyle was gay? Uh, yeah. Megan made her way around the room, along the edges of conversations, until she could insert herself into the one Jason and Jesse were having. She didn't actually want to be part of it. She wanted to end it, and then pick up where she and Jason had left off 20 minutes ago at the hub. Megan knew how to work a room, and she knew how to box someone out, and she wasn't finished with Jason Kesmerick. Or perhaps she just didn't want him to be finished with her. Jessie was easy to redirect, and she soon drifted over to where Danielle and Tracy stood at the digital jukebox. Jason was nursing another beer. Megan had nothing, and wished she had something to do with her hands. She took her phone out of her purse and leaned into Jason's side. Smile, she said, as she snapped a selfie of the two of them. She put the phone away again before she could see any text messages from her staff or her husband or her mother. Then she looked around for the moment they had almost had at the hub. She knew she was forcing it. She also knew, intrinsically, that it couldn't happen here at Mixers. The hub's warm ambiance, an oak bar, and crooning live singer and fat-bearded bartender had been replaced by cold blue lights, black tables, irritating top 40, and a wayfish blonde pixie bartender with tattoos and piercings and too much eyeliner. I saw you're managing your own hotel now, she said, though she had no interest in talking about his job and knew he probably didn't either. Is that tough with the kids? Odd hours? Sometimes, but probably not much worse than your job. Yeah, I guess. 
You travel a lot? he asked. A fair amount. You like it? The travel? Sure, all of it. Megan was trying to decide whether to give him an honest answer, which is so hard to do when you can't even give one to yourself. When Jeff slid up to the table, threw his arm around her, and shouted, Hey! What's your favorite song to dance to? I don't dance. I don't know that one. It's not a song. Who's it by? No one. It's not a song. Jeff's face scrunched up in confusion. Don't you want to dance? Megan shook her head. No, thanks. Jeff shrugged and then locked in on a new target and skated off. I think he likes you, Jason said. Megan rolled her eyes. Yeah. No, really. I think if you got one more drink into him, he'd tell you how he really feels. That's so? And how many more would it take with you? Did she just say that? Why did she say that? Jason smiled at her, revealing a pair of matched crow's feet at the corners of his eyes. Megan could think of nothing to say that might tamp down the embarrassment she felt welling up inside of her. Mercifully, Tracy grabbed her wrist and said, We're going to the castle. We just got here, she said. I haven't even gotten a drink. This place is lame tonight, and there's this creeper lurking around Brad's wife, so we're taking a picture outside, and then we're going to the castle. Megan looked at Jason. Are you going to the castle? The look said. He just kept smiling. Their little group filed out onto the side street, which was strung with a roof of patio lights year-round. Danielle's non-Kennedy graduate husband took the pictures with various phones, though Megan neglected to hand him hers. She had a vague sense that perhaps she shouldn't even be in these photos. They were sure to be shared online, and she was sure to be tagged, and some follower was sure to be scandalized by evidence that she was out past 1 a.m. at a bar with a bunch of inebriated chicks in low-cut shirts and guys making asses of themselves with hands around the waists of women who were not their wives. At least she didn't have a drink in her hand, or God forbid, a cigarette. When it was clear that they were holding up traffic on the road, the group dispersed to their cars and Ubers to finish the night's pilgrimage at the castle in Sussex, just a few blocks north and west of the high school. It was a bar Megan had heard about for years, but that she'd never actually been to since she'd left Sussex before she reached drinking age and rarely returned after. In her school days, it had been a rumored haunt of various teachers, and more than once, Principal Pietka was said to have closed the place down. As Megan crawled down the darkened streets toward Sussex, she half-wished certain teachers would be there, especially Mrs. Flint, her favorite English teacher, who died suddenly and too young not long after Megan graduated. It would be even more fun to connect with some of them than it had been with her classmates. She'd be able to see the gleam of pride in their eyes for what she had become. Those kinds of looks had kept her going for years, through college and community theater and graduate school. She had always loved to impress people. As she pulled into the dark, nearly empty parking lot, however, it was apparent that until her group, now down to just seven, arrived, the place was completely empty at 1.30 a.m. on a Saturday night. Jessie Rogers had left mixers in an Uber bound for her parents' house. Jason leaned against his Xterra, lit by the floodlight on the back wall of the castle, smoking a jar of black. Ugh, that smells incredible, Megan said. He indicated his breast pocket, and she fished out the pack. She placed the cigarette between her lips and let him light it with a match. She took a long, slow drag, let the smoke linger in her mouth a moment, then blew it skyward, licking the sweetness from her lips, now devoid of lipstick, 
She'd left the last of it on the unfinished martini back at the hub. You don't actually smoke these, do you? She said. Jason laughed. No, I got these special for tonight. I don't smoke. You? No. No where you're allowed to do it anymore anyway. She sucked in another spicy sweet mouthful and blew it out. Man, the 90s tasted amazing. Remember Surge? Yeah, he said. They brought it back, you know. It's not as good as you're remembering. She nodded. Seems like nothing ever is. Megan gazed out into the blackness that started beyond the reach of the floodlight. Like life, you could see just so far ahead, and no further. Beyond the ring of bright definition could lay your wildest dreams within your grasp if you would just leave the familiar and go after them. Or perhaps what awaited you was your worst nightmare, and you were far better off to stay within sight of the known world, even if it was small and boring and stifling. If she walked off right now, into the endless shadowed realm beyond the circle of light, would he follow her? She thought he might. She took one last long pull on the cigarette, stomped it out on the pavement, and started walking toward the door. Come on, the others are already inside. She went in without waiting to see if he would follow. Whether he did or not, she needed to be in a well-lit place. Megan wasn't entirely sure what she had expected the castle to look like inside. Truth be told, she hadn't given it a thought, but it surprised her nonetheless. It was achingly bright, with fake wood-paneled walls, a skimpy bar, and old tube-style TVs in the corners flashing the winning Kino numbers. She tried and failed to order a Moscow mule. They didn't have copper mugs or ginger beer, then settled for another martini. The girl had to use a tumbler because they didn't have martini glasses, and then she had to go in the back for olives. Megan took a sip and cringed. It wasn't cold enough, and it was definitely made from low-grade vodka. She thought wistfully of the unfinished martini at the hub, and then snatched the jar of olives off the bar and took it with her to a table. After a quick assessment of who was still around, Megan realized that except for Jason and Jeff, all of her friends were gone. Those who remained were people with whom she had nothing in common. They hadn't played on any teams together, hadn't performed in any plays together, hadn't spent any time together out of school. No matter. They were off in their own little group, throwing darts and choosing songs on the digital jukebox Megan had never heard before. She stood between Jeff and Jason at a little round table and realized she'd run out of things to say. Because she wasn't going to say the one thing. Jeff put his arm around her. You done good, kid. You done good. Megan shared a bemused glance with Jason. I always knew you were special. Always knew you'd show everyone all those opinions of yours. Now everybody's got to listen to them. You done good. Thanks, she said. A mopey country crooner came across the speakers. Oh, man, Jeff said. Yes! And he walked over to the people playing darts and began to sing along with them. I hope he has a ride home, Megan said, popping an olive into her mouth. I miss ride, Jason said. Good. The two of them stared at nothing for a minute or two. Megan kept eating the olives. The song ended. Another began. How old do you feel? Jason said. 
Megan wipes her briny fingers on a cocktail napkin. I don't know. I guess... I guess I thought one day I would just feel like an adult, you know? Like I imagined my parents felt. But it never really happened. I still just feel like me. That's a good answer. She didn't ask him how old he felt. The question itself was the answer. Jeff was now seated in the far corner with the girl from the class of 2001. Their heads were nearly touching. Who is that? Megan said. Sarah Kugler, you remember her. No, I don't. She's the one who was in the car with Brad Ellis when he died. Oh, her. She lives in town, I assume? Yeah, everyone here does, except us. Are those two, like, going out? They have, off and on, but I don't know about now. Looks like they're edging toward on. Megan looked at the clock. 2.17. Didn't bars close at 2 a.m.? What was she still doing here? Are you staying at your parents' tonight? he asked. Yeah, you? Yeah. She was glad he hadn't said he was staying in a hotel. She was glad he had to give Jeff a ride home. Well, I guess I may as well get going, she said, picking up the jar of olives. You taking those with you? I sure am. They don't need them here. His eyes crinkled as he smiled. I'll walk you out. They made their way through the empty tables to the door, and Megan could feel Jason's hand at the small of her back. It felt just like it had when they wove through the crowded dance floor at prom. It didn't push, and it didn't guide. She chose the path, and he followed. The hand was there, so he wouldn't lose her. You want to say goodbye to anyone, he said? No. Outside, the August air was as thick and hot as it had been inside. Jason followed her to the car and waited while she dug through that giant purse for her keys. She wondered if he was thinking that maybe she wasn't finding them on purpose, that maybe she didn't really want to leave after all. Would that please him? Would he drive her home and wait in the driveway until she was inside, as he had on so many nights so long ago? Megan's fingers found the keys, and she pressed the button to unlock the door. You're all right to drive? Jason said. Yeah, I haven't finished a drink for hours. Plus, I've got these. She tucked the jar of olives into the cup holder and tossed her purse on the passenger seat, then straightened up, hoping Jason had an idea of how to end this, because she sure didn't. She felt the same dull sense of dread that she'd felt at the beginning of the night when she was standing with her hand on the doorknob outside the party. She hadn't been able to make herself go in until someone else showed her she would be welcomed. Now she couldn't leave until... what? Jason looked down from his six-foot-two height. A half-smile touched his lips. The door to the castle opened, then shut. No one came out but Megan could sense they didn't have much time before the bartender kicked the rest of them out into the night. It was really nice seeing you, Megan said. Yeah, it was good to see you. She blew out a breath and patted the side of his arm. See, she said, I can be fun. His smile broadened. I never thought otherwise. Never. He opened his arms to her and she entered the embrace. 
She thought once more of how much better it would be for everyone if kissing were a normal part of American greetings and partings, so there'd never have to be that awkward post-hug moment when both parties tried to figure out the most appropriate way to end the exchange. The hug went on a moment too long, and she stepped back. She got in the car, started it up, and gave a little wave. He waved back, still smiling. But as she pulled out of the parking lot, she saw the smile disappear from his face, and he finally looked how she felt. That still nameless feeling that wasn't regret and wasn't sadness and wasn't disappointment, but was just something. Clinch, a podcast of fiction and not fiction, is a Cardiff Giant production. Copyright 2019, Zachary Bartles. Produced in partnership with KD Enterprises. Theme music composed and performed by Bill Colin. The text of 98, a short story, copyright 2018, Aaron Bartles. Special thanks to WAC Productions, www.wacfilm.com. For more information about Aaron and her books and her podcast, Your Face is Crooked, visit www.aaronbartles.com. And don't forget to pick up her debut novel, We Hope for Better Things, on Amazon or IndieBound at your local bookstore or anywhere great books are sold. If you'd like to connect with me on social media or learn about my books or the several podcasts I host and co-host, you'll find me at www.zacharybartles.com. Thanks for listening.